Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Chapter 35. King's Cross. May I have your attention, please? May I have your attention, please? Will the real weird sisters please stand up? We're gonna have a problem here. We're the weird sisters, we're the real weird sisters. All you other weird sisters are fine, but not the victors. Will the real weird sisters please stand up? Please stand up. Please stand up. Hi, and welcome to the Real Weird Sisters. I'm Martha. And I'm Alice. And today we're here to talk about chapter 35 of Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. Um, I really am nervous, Alice, excited, but also very nervous to talk about this chapter. It is one of my all-time favorite chapters in the series. Uh, why are you nervous, Martha? Is it because you're not wearing any clothes? <laughs> oh, I just realized I'm not clothed. <laughs> suddenly, I, suddenly I wish I were clothed. Oh, there are some robes. I'll put them on. <laughs> um yeah I'm psyched to talk about this as well it it's interesting because I think you and I have kind of the reverse uh reactions to this one and the previous chapter into the forest or sorry the forest again because I really really like it and I think there's a lot of like quotable moments but I definitely was not like crying when I read this were you crying Oh, yeah. I just feel when I read this chapter, um, and I this was this time, too, like, I just have this, like, lump in my throat the whole time where it's like, I feel really um, blown away by the creativity in this chapter. I feel really touched by the, like, moments between Harry and Dumbledore. And this time, more than anything, what I was struck by is the just the, like, the the setting of this chapter and just all the information that Dumbledore gives, I was thinking about um, is all stuff that Harry knows already. So, and obviously this goes into the the final quote of the chapter, one of both of yours and my all time favorite quotes of the series of happening in Harry's head, but of course, whatever, why should that mean? It's not real. Um, All of this information is information that Harry already knows. There's nothing really new that Dumbledore gives Harry, even though it is new, it's stuff that Harry could have figured out on his own, and it is if you think if you're looking at it from that, um, all of it being in Harry's head perspective. So, I I just think it's it's such a creative chapter. It just makes me feel really touched the whole time. It's not sad. It's just very emotional for me to read this chapter, and it it is um, like you said, the kind of the opposite of how or the, the reverse of how you feel about the forest again. That's how I feel about this chapter. It's just weird to me because your whole 
criticism with the forest again was the fact that the the ghost memory whatevers were too fantastical and like hard for you to wrap your mind around. Well, this chapter is even more so um, because I feel like the entire thing, the whole premise is like very out there and one of the most like fantasy based elements that we've ever seen in the series. So it's weird to me that you're so accepting of this and not of that. Well, and I I think I want to take back a little bit of what I said last week about I don't want to say I don't accept the the figures coming out of the Resurrection Stone. Like, that's not exactly it. But for this chapter, it does feel like there's more explanation, even though, like you said, it is a little bit more of that fantastic aspect. I can totally explain everything that happens in this chapter. Like, to me, it all makes sense. I know exactly what's happening and where Harry is and what's happening in terms of the location and setting and everything. I didn't the first time I read it, but now I, I definitely feel like I have all the answers. Whereas with the the Resurrection Stone and the Forest, again, like, it just is, there's too many unanswered things for me. And I, I think that's maybe part of it. And then I think I, as I was thinking about this more, like, more, like, criticism I got over the past week about my feelings towards the Forest again, I think part of the emotional, like, hit in for, the Forest again is lessened for me just because it's not the first time that Harry's encountered these figures. Like I think in Priori and Cantatum in the fourth book that like seeing his, his parents then is almost more emotional than, than it is for me seeing them in the forest again. The first time I read the forest again, it's different because I really did think Harry was going to his death. But now that I'm reading it, you know, 25 times later, I think it's just, we, I, we're not here to talk about the forest again, obviously, but the, the <laughs> impact is, is lessened for me just because I know he's not actually going to his death. Yeah, that's fair. I get that. Um, I just, when I read it, I, I have, I usually, like, I don't totally always think about how Harry's going to survive when I read the forest again. Mm-hmm. So I think that's why it's been very emotional for me. Um, and I don't have a problem with the King's Cross setting or any of that stuff. I, 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 but the interesting thing is that I don't feel like I totally understand it. Um, that's fine with me because I've always felt like it, you don't have to be able to explain everything. But it sounds like you are able to explain everything. So I'll be interested to hear your perspective on it. Well, okay. I'm probably over-exaggerating uh, how much I think I understand. And I, it's not that I feel like I have all the answers, but for me it makes sense. Like I, I think I get it for me. I don't think I have the full explanation for everybody, but to me, I have all the answers that I need. So, okay. I'll, yeah. Well, I'll maybe that's going. how I feel too then. Although there's yeah. plenty of times when I feel like I don't have the answers with it, but I'm just okay with that in this chapter. Yeah. Well, I think reading it this time, I felt like I was able to get more than I had in the past or I was trying to answer all the questions and I, we'll get into it as we go. But um, I, we do have one bit of housekeeping to, to address before we get going with the actual chapter here. Um, and that is that this over the weekend, if you're listening to this live, um, our patrons um, had special access to our announcement of what is coming after the book club. Um, and we are not going to be making that announcement to our general audience until um, after the book club ends um, between the final episode and or between the final chapter and the movie cast. But if you are a patron, 
Children of the Real Weird Sisters, you found out over the weekend or you had access to finding out um, what's coming next. Um, so if you are interested in becoming a patron just to find out what's coming next, you can go to patreon.com slash realweirdsisters. Otherwise, you could wait a few weeks and find out. Um, but I just wanted to plug the fact that we have officially announced what is coming next. Yeah, and it was really a fun episode because we go through kind of like uh, where we've been and where we're going and our reasoning of what we decided to do next. So um, it's a very, I really enjoyed recording that episode um, and we've gotten really some great feedback from the patrons so far. So, I mean, if you join now, we'll know that it was probably in order to get access to that show and that is totally fine. So, yeah. We'd love to have you come on board. Otherwise, like you said, Martha, everybody will be finding out in a couple weeks. So it's not like a it's we're not going to make you wait forever. No. Um, yeah. So as, as Shut Up Tim called that episode, our humble braggy episode, we do spend a lot of time <laughs> talking about all the different things that we've done through the years with the show. Um, did feel a little bit like uh, self-indulgent in some ways. Pat but on the back. For yeah. Ourselves, but yeah. <laughs> but. It was a fun show to record, even though it was a little bit braggy in some ways. I hope not. I hope not too braggy. But shut up, Tim. Definitely got in our heads about that. Well, um, you've anyway. just had such an amazing podcast history. It's going to sound like bragging to just to talk about it. Yeah, exactly. You get it. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, let's go ahead and jump into King's Cross here. Uh, first of all, we do see the little Harry's head in the chapter art. Um, being whisked away. Uh, have Are we you talked about this one before? This? I think we may have mentioned it. <laughs> I think we have too. Uh, not my favorite, no. I <laughs> don't need to see such a close-up of his head. And as usual, I feel like the dimensions of his head are not consistent with other photos we've gotten. I mean, illustrations we've gotten of him so far. Um, it seems like... like I don't dislike the dimensions of his head here. I think they're fine, but I just don't think that they look like how his head has looked in other pictures. He's kind of got really long cheeks and a very <laughs> short forehead. Um, yeah. <laughs> I Just a long face reason, in general and narrow. I mean, that's yeah. how I picture Harry's head. I don't picture it to be, like, really round or anything. But um, I don't know. I, I also just don't love how his eyes are closed, but... <laughs> I get it, I guess. Well, he's dreaming. Um, we yeah, love Barry Grandprey. We do. Um, <laughs> I do think it's kind of funny because um, I have this image in my head of, of what I always kind of think is supposed to be the chapter art for this chapter. And it's uh, the image from the movie of um, Dumbledore in King's Cross. And I... For some reason, that image really stands out to me, even though it is Michael Gambon, and we know we all know how I feel about that. But I feel like the the um, just the image of him in the station, totally empty with all the white light, like that, for some reason, has uh, usurped this chapter art as kind of the emblematic um, King's Cross picture. Hmm, that's interesting because I I usually sort of forget that scene in the movie. I I, I can picture the setting now that you say that. Um, and I, I do think that they do a pretty good job with the setting there. Um, I, I will see how that holds on a rewatch because I like kind of like you, I haven't watched that movie that much, so I don't remember that scene very well. Um, yeah, I try to block out that, anything with Michael Gambon, so that's probably why. One thing that's kind of weird is this, uh, 
art, like you can't see Harry's scar in the picture. Um, and for some reason, like I always kind of makes it makes me like do a double take, like, oh, does Harry's scar disappear when the Horcrux part of him dies? But no, that's not the case. Like in the epilogue, like it, it mentions his scar. Um, so he does still have the scar, but it's not in the art. <laughs> Yeah, I sort of know what you mean, because I feel like I actually think that before the book came out, the theory was that Harry's scar was the Horcrux. Mm. And so I can kind of see I'm I think I'm pretty sure that was a theory. I think I remember um, that now. And so I I think that maybe some people probably do think that the scar disappeared after because it was the Horcrux. But that's not quite the case. I'm kind of glad it's not. It would have been a little bit too. I don't know. I, I, I'm kind of glad there's not like a physical representation of that. Right. Um, and last thing about the chapter art, it does remind me in a weird way of the chapter art for the life and lives of Albus Dumbledore. It's kind of, I think Mary Grand Prairie actually kind of has been consistent about the way she's drawing Harry in the close-up pictures in this book, at least, because the face is very similar. It just, he has a scar in that chapter art, but it's that same like close-up on Harry's face looking very emo. Um, and his eyes are open in that one and he has his glasses but yeah uh and it's interesting with the glasses thing because he has like perfect eyesight in in this vision in this um i don't even know what to call this this like half afterlife thing yeah um so that makes sense i guess that he would not not need his glasses right all right, well, let's go ahead and jump into the chapter because it's a big one. It's a very important one. I'm very excited to talk about it. Um, it starts off with this kind of weird, like, dreamlike sequence of him becoming aware of his existence. Um, he realizes that he has a body because he realizes that he's lying on a surface and he has a sense of touch and the thing against which he lay existed too. So it's, it's kind of in his head of, like, where am I? Who am I? Do I have a body? And he realizes that he is aware. He was aware of his existence, and he is there, wherever it is. Makes me think of. Is that from The Office? Where um, I feel like it's like Robert California or something. It's like ten fingers, ten toes, and uh, two eyes, ears, a nose, a mouth, a butt. I don't remember. I what is don't that remember from? that. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, it's so stupid, but. Um, Hold on, I'm gonna have that, to look that if up. If it's Robert California, that would explain it because I don't like anything with. <laughs> I don't either. Okay, I just looked it up and it, it was Creed who said that, and he was. It, I didn't quite get the quote right. I'm not gonna read the whole thing right now because it's even less appropriate than when, what I said. Um, <laughs> but he, he says that that he has just described to you the Loch Ness monster. <laughs> so that's what that's what Harry's doing here. <laughs> yeah. Um, coming to terms with his body and he what is true of Harry could also be true of the Loch Ness monster very good point uh, really so makes you think could, so glad I could uh bring that quote to light because I think that <laughs> that was definitely um you know one was inspired by the other yeah probably I'm sure I'm sure one came first I'm not sure but uh one of them definitely was inspired by the other so <laughs> um yeah so Harry is in this location and he doesn't we don't we only know it's king's cross because that's the name of the chapter but i wonder whether people like the word king's cross or the phrase king's cross definitely has this like um 
kind of ethereal feeling to it just because of the the words in it obviously people know that king's cross is the station and we've like that's been a place in harry potter that's been established so it's not like you have to be um from england to know about king's cross um to know that when you're reading harry potter so i i think when i read this the first time like i saw the chapter title was king's cross and i don't think i knew exactly why right away but like when um you see the phrase king's cross it also has this kind of double meaning of like the cross obviously um and the crossroads and and, you know, the the religious cross. And there's there's a lot of different meanings to the name of King's Cross. Yeah, totally. And I think um, it's definitely intentional that, you know, that we get all of those kind of connotations attached to it. Um, the interesting thing is that I don't think it really is determined that it is King's Cross. Like, I mean, I get that it's in Harry's mind. So it's kind of his his choice to describe it how he wants but like when he says king's cross dumbledore like kind of laughs and thinks that's a really like funny thing that harry said so it doesn't i don't know that it's ever really confirmed other than that it is the chapter title like i feel like it's like king's cross but it obviously it's not the physical king's cross station but it's just kind of weird that it, like it's become so widely accepted that harry's at king's cross well, and I think this is what we're getting into with like the logistics of this dream and I or not dream, but this, this uh, chapter, because I don't want to like get bogged down in the details. And I know you don't either about where they are. Um, I don't think it's necessarily like popular opinion that he's literally at King's Cross. And I don't think that's what you're saying either. But yeah, you're you're right that like it's Harry as as uh, as they say, it's his party. Um, Dumbledore saying that is always infuriating to me. But um, uh, well, Harry too. Harry gets so annoyed. <laughs> He's like, okay, Dumbledore. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I do think that it's interesting. Um, you're right that there, it's never really confirmed, except for the fact that it's the chapter title, which almost in itself is a confirmation of where they are. Um, but I, I will say right away, like my understanding of this chapter this time, more than anything, was like. Okay, and I, I don't think that this is going to be, like, novel information. I'm not trying to say I'm, like, mind-blown or, like, have, like, a crazy theory about it or anything. Okay, well, but I'm really excited to hear what you have to say. Okay, no, that's... Something new. No, that's not what I said. <laughs> so, the... The chapter, the, the line at the very end of the chapter, which we quote all the time, of course, it's happening in your head, Harry, but why on earth should that mean it's not real? Like, what this says to me is that... And, okay, I'm trying not to act like this is new information. <laughs> I'm sitting here with bated breath. Okay, stop. We all know this is all happening in Harry's head. Like, this is not a real physical thing that's happening. This, like, weird thing at the beginning of, like, him becoming aware that he has a body, like, kind of makes you think twice about whether it's all happening in his head. But to me, what this this chapter, more than anything this time, showed is that this is all Harry's consciousness in his head like putting the details together Dumbledore is not really Dumbledore it's not really a ghost Dumbledore it's not like a um Dumbledore's portrait talking to Harry it is all Harry's consciousness putting a figure into his head and it I don't want to say it's a dream because it's not a dream but it's the same concept as a dream because we in our heads like when we dream we'll have characters come in and people that we know in our lives like and we'll have conversations with them and obviously they're just manifestations of our own understanding and awareness and I think that that's what's happening here because literally this chapter like everything Dumbledore says is stuff that Harry could have figured out himself and it, I, it is Harry figuring it out himself to me. 
See, now <clears throat> you've taken, I think, one theory about what this this could be. I think you are you have a lot of evidence for it, so I'm not saying that you're wrong. I, yeah. I, I do agree that that's possible, that this is all in, inside Harry's head. But I definitely feel like, to me, I... I've always understood it as more uh, a little bit more complex than that, where it's and it's like you said, it's not a dream because it's different than that. But I do see it as like a combination of Harry, like Harry's consciousness and sort of like the afterlife kind of meeting. And I like I said, I I don't I don't think that it's I don't know I. I have always kind of thought that it is partially Dumbledore, Dumbledore's soul that gets to interact with Harry. And mm -hmm. I can see what you're saying. Like I, I could, that theory does make total sense, but I have always seen it as a little bit more than that. Um, and so I don't know. Well, I guess we, let's just go through the chapter and then we yeah. can kind of see what we where we come down on this because that's and yeah like you said we'll, we'll go through it more but that's how I used to see it and I definitely I think that the theme of the soul and the difference between a soul and a body and everything that's so prevalent in the series that that's probably partially why I used to think that, that this was what this was um but this time around reading all the stuff that Dumbledore says and there's some specific lines that really made me feel this way it just I don't think that this is actually Dumbledore or actually Dumbledore's soul. I think that this is Harry, all of it. Um, and that I was really struck by that this time around. Okay. Well, let's go um, through it. Okay. Um, so like we said, he's aware of his existence. He realizes he's naked. Um, he's looking around at his surroundings and um, it's like, there's this vapor all around him. Um, it's very, it's not exactly, it says that the floor is white, but it's not, doesn't have like a temperature really, it's just everything is very strange. He doesn't have glasses. And then finally he, he wishes he had clothes on. So he puts on some, some robes that appear. <laughs> well, it's kind of a little bit creepy too because, um, yeah, he starts to kind of like hear a rustling noise or like the, the, the pitiful noise. And that's when he starts to really wish he had clothes on um, because he realizes that he's not alone. So that part has always been a little bit creepy to me. Like yes. You're in like such a peaceful place where you feel like completely at ease. And then all of a sudden it's just like this like weird, creepy noise coming from you don't really know what. Right. So there's these there's this uh, pitiful noise. Um, there's these small, soft thumpings. He still hasn't figured out where it's coming from. He's still looking around his surroundings and kind of trying to think what it is. Um, and then he finds the source of the noise. And it's... Uh, the, it says it has the form of a small naked child curled on the ground, its skin raw and rough, flayed looking, and it lay shuddering under a seat where it had been left, unwanted, stuffed out of sight, struggling for breath. Which is extremely creepy. And this is part of why I, I guess that Harry could create this in his mind after having seen the whole prince's tale and all the memories there. I think he could have come to the conclusion that the Horcrux could be destroyed without himself being destroyed um, and then made some sort of physical manifestation of it. But I've this is part of why I feel like it's not all in Harry's head. It's partly like, I, okay, and I don't want to say real. I guess that quote kind of messes, messes up the way we're going to talk about it. But like, yeah. <laughs> I, and it's not a physical thing, but I do feel like it's it's beyond just Harry's consciousness when we see stuff like this. This is where I'm like, 
to me, this is like a confirmation of what happens with Horcruxes, um, what a Horcrux would look like without an object to contain it. And it just seems kind of strange to me that Harry would completely generate that from his own mind. Well, so that's, I, I agree that this is um, supposed to be the manifestation of the Horcrux or like whatever died when Harry was killed by Voldemort or quote unquote killed. The Horcrux part of him was killed. Um, but when I was reading it this time, I was really thinking about what Harry has seen up to this point that looks very similar to this. And obviously the first thing that comes to mind is the the Embrymort, um, um, the fetus version of Voldemort um, that Wormtail throws into the cauldron and uh, <laughs> the, the graveyard and Goblet of Fire. And it, it, the description of that is very similar to this with the like, um, like child, like a childlike body, but very pitiful looking and repulsive and red and like creepy looking. Um, so I feel like that, like that image is in Harry's head and this is how dreams work. Like if you, if you like study dreams, like things that you dream about, like are almost always going to be things you have seen that maybe you've forgotten about or like forgotten the details of, but that come back into you, into your consciousness as a dream. Um, so this is a child. And I know that the thing in the Goblet of Fire is supposed to be a lot smaller, like a baby more like, but I think it's a very similar image um, that would have been in Harry's mind or at least in his subconscious. Um, so that I'm able to explain that in that way. Yeah, I get it. I, I just feel like your little vision of this whole thing kind of takes some of the magic out of it. And I think that's okay. part of why you like enjoy yeah. like that you're enjoying it more because you <laughs> exactly. feel like you can understand it. But to me, it's it's more I think it's I like I like it more as not not being able to explain every little thing. Well, OK, and that's fair, too. And I don't want to like take that away from you or from other listeners who enjoy that part of this chapter. Um, I just wanted to say what I see it as, but I think that we can also see it the way you're saying for sure. Um, the other thing that it does remind me of though, is the, um, the bell jar um, in the in the department of mysteries um, with the um, Dolohov, like when he gets the bell, the jar on him mm -hmm. on his head and he like goes back into the, weird baby version of himself. So I feel like there are those two images that this one kind of recalls with that. Definitely. Like, I, I think it's very consistent with what we've know so far. So I do appreciate that. Um, I think that you're right. Like it is possible. You could definitely explain it away as part of the dream. Um, but that I see it kind of like as more like, a, I'm glad you brought up the department of mysteries because I'm seeing it kind of from a department of mysteries standpoint where it's like, I feel like, wizards wouldn't be able to fully explain what this is um and that like even jk rowling i don't think that she 100 percent knows exactly what happened in this scene like i think that yeah and i don't mean that as a bad thing i mean that like as i think that if you okay first of all i think if anybody asked her was that was that scene a dream of harry's or was that like reality I, I think she would give some sort of very like enigmatic it, response. Totally. I don't think she <laughs> would sure. answer that straight out. So I don't think we're going to ever know from her perspective what, what this is. But I think that like really from her perspective, I would be surprised if she had a concrete answer for us. Like I think she knew enough to be able to write it, but that was that, that she likes having those elements of like unexplainable magic at the same time. 
Yeah, I think you're totally right. And it would be too much to try to explain everything. Like, that's kind of from the religious standpoint, too. Like, it's kind of like having faith um, or, like, doubts are the core to faith. It depends on what what perspective you're looking at. But I I agree that I think if J.K. Rowling were asked this explicitly, she would never give any kind of confirmation either way. It would always be, like, a very mysterious answer the way that Dumbledore leaves it in the end of this chapter, which is how it should be. I, I don't want there to be a universal agreed upon uh, explanation of this chapter. I yeah. just am explaining what my own interpretation Oh, and that's, of that's totally valid. And I yeah. completely, like, I think you have a really good case for the way that you're reading it. Um, but it's just, I haven't really exactly read it like that before. Yeah. Well, and that's fine. So um, as we keep going here, uh, Harry is, like, feeling like he needs to help or comfort this, like, child, but he is also really repulsed by it. Um, So he's says he feels like a coward, and as he's kind of looking at it, uh, he hears a voice saying, you cannot help, and it's Dumbledore walking towards him. Uh, and I, okay, so for me, since I don't see this as just Harry's mind only, um, I have always been very touched by this reunification and just seeing Dumbledore again Yeah. and imagining that, imagining how Dumbledore, even if Dumbledore, even if this really is just Harry, if we can imagine how Dumbledore would be feeling in this moment to see Harry and to be so proud of him for what he's done. Um, and to know, like, that his plan worked out, even though it's a little bit, he's a little bit evil, but <laughs> it is kind of, like, everything worked out for him in the end, and he, like, he kind of knew, and this is where I do feel like Dumbledore takes on that godlike role of, like, I don't know, sort of being a little bit more all-knowing than most other wizards. Oh, a hundred percent. Like, and I, even if, even from my perspective of it, me still thinking that this is Harry's uh, consciousness, like creating a manifestation of Dumbledore, it's still an extremely touching reunion. Um, to see Harry, um, be embraced by Dumbledore. Um, and they walk together and sit down, and Harry's thinking about how everything is as he as he'd remembered. Um that is just so so emotional um just to read that and i agree completely that this is this omnipotent um or at least omniscient um godlike figure of dumbledore and that that to me does kind of go towards my case as well because i think that this is how harry used to see dumbledore and it's kind of this like ethereal persona that harry used to uh like idolize in dumbledore and this like reunion here kind of is harry I think it's a manifestation of Harry forgiving Dumbledore and like feeling going kind kind of reverting back to how he used to see Dumbledore and having the like complete story. This is how he feels about Dumbledore now. Yeah, I, I agree. I do think that it show it, it is the final, um, the final like reconciliation of Harry with Dumbledore and accepting what he's done and accepting his, his part in the plan. Um, and I, I think it's pretty cool to see. Um, I don't know. I I just like have adding the adding the element of Dumbledore seeing Harry. And I think that that's where the dream aspect loses that. Like because it would only Dumble this Dumbledore wouldn't actually have any thoughts then. That's true. Um, and yeah, you're right that 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 does add a different layer to it. But yeah, to to me, I I, I can. I still do feel like there is that emotional value either way. So I, I see what you're saying, though, that um, 
it's yeah. interesting to think about if this is the real Dumbledore, what his reaction would be to seeing Harry. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And to, to just to be clear, like we do know that there is going to be another reunion of Harry and Dumbledore with Dumbledore's portrait, um, which we'll, we'll get to the kind of maybe issues that I have with that later on. <laughs> but um, yeah. So Harry's first statement to Dumbledore is like, he's confused about why Dumbledore is there because he says, but you're dead. Oh yes. <laughs> he says that matter of factly. Yeah. Um, so then Harry's asking whether he's dead too. And Dumbledore says like, on the whole, I think not. Yeah. And I like, and I can see how in a, in, if this is more of like a dream, like you're saying, um, then I can see how it, it works. It still works. Even though Harry is like learning things, because I've definitely been in a dream where somebody has told me something in the dream that I didn't know. Me too. And, and it's, it's very weird because it is your own mind creating that. So it's definitely possible here that, that Dumbledore as Harry's mind would be telling Harry from his own perspective, things that he didn't realize himself. So. Right. Things that he had the information about, but didn't have the full story of, mm-hmm. um, he hadn't put connected all the dots, but yeah. So Harry is again, like very very he's like i'm not <laughs> i'm a i'm a not <laughs> um, and he says like i should have died oh okay actually and it does say that he does not think that his lightning scar is there which is weird because it does come back yeah yeah it does come back when he's alive again because we see it in the 19 years later for sure if not other times too i'm not sure but definitely at the end of the book we see it Right. So it's odd, I guess, maybe like in this sequence, like wherever he is, if it's a dream or if it's the afterlife or whatever it is, um, he does not have the scar. So that's an interesting thing. It's kind of I wonder if that's supposed to represent the Horcrux or if it's just kind of because if it did, it's odd that it does come that it does uh, come back later on. Well, I th- what I think this is, is that this this afterlife aspect is more of like where you're going to have like a complete whole unflawed person and yeah so that I think that sense. like I don't think it's necessarily that, that that it was the horcrux but I think it's that Harry is there in his like complete form like that's why he can see as well what if um he actually did um his scar did actually disappear because of the horcrux but he decided to get a tattoo of it um to remind him where from where it came <laughs> Uh, well, not just to remind him, but to remind others. I'm yeah. the boy who lived. I'm the chosen one. Um, yeah, though, but he's like, I never forget be, where you came from. That would be, um, yeah, that's true, too. It could be both perspectives. Um, I don't think Harry would do that because he likes his anonymity more than, yes. but, like, that's the perception that a lot of the fans would have that, <laughs> oh, the, the Harry loves being famous and right. he he's a, um, whatever attention jock hog, became, yeah. who became a hot a cop yeah okay I almost well, said a hop <laughs> a hot cop yeah he was a hot cop yeah so Dumbledore Harry asked Dumbledore to explain and Dumbledore says but you already know and this is where again I do think that there's not really any new information that Dumbledore is truly giving Harry and but that again is also in keeping with Dumbledore's character um, in real life too he never really wanted to just tell Harry how it was he wanted Harry to come to those conclusions on his own so there are two sides to that um but Harry figures out pretty quickly like the part of Dumbledore the the part of Voldemort's soul that was in him that's what's gone yeah and um 
Dumbledore says that, well, Harry comes to the idea that he let Voldemort kill him. And then Dumbledore clarifies that that's what's going to have made all the difference. Um, And that's because, like, then Voldemort just killed the Horcrux. Um, and, And there is the whole story that's coming up about how Lily's blood is what tied Harry to life. And I always sort of forget this. Like, I do know this, and I know we have talked about it on the show, but... I always sort of forget that that's really the reason that Harry was still able to be alive. So, because Voldemort is still alive, and that's why we didn't. That's why Vol- Dumbledore did not want Harry to kill Voldemort at the same time as as Harry was killed, um, because then I don't think Harry would be able to come back then, because he wouldn't be tied to life in some way. Right, and that's what the gleam of triumph is in the fourth book when right. um, Harry tells Dumbledore that Voldemort took his blood. Um, and this is something that we talked about um, back in the fourth book, and we didn't totally understand it at the time. But a lot of listeners filled in the blanks for us that the flaw, <laughs> or that the the gleam of triumph in Dumbledore's eyes is him realizing that Voldemort taking Harry's blood is going to be what keeps Harry tethers Harry to life. Um, so it's really interesting here because Dumbledore again he's saying like. I think you know, like, think back. Like, he doesn't say, he doesn't confirm anything until Harry has figured it out for himself. So, like, Harry figures out, again, that Voldemort took his blood. And just to, like, explain from my perspective what this means, that when Voldemort took Harry's blood, he took the part of Harry's blood or a part of Harry's blood that kept Harry alive because Lily had died for him. Um, So while Voldemort lives, Harry has to live. Um, And Lily's sacrifice was what allowed Harry to live. And that sacrifice lives on in Voldemort's body. So that's why Harry has to stay alive if Voldemort is alive. It is. Yeah. Like clearly that's why I always forget. Like, okay, I clearly forgot when Dumbledore had the gleam of triumph, but I like, I remember that now. And it's just, it's interesting that I always forget that it's, it, I don't know. It almost seems too good to be true. Like, um, what 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 would happen if, let's say, Harry and Rod decided to become blood brothers in in <laughs> in the first book? Then, if Ron was still alive, would Harry be alive? Ooh, good idea. Is that? I think you've uncovered a, a really good uh, conspiracy. Maybe that's something they should have done. Uh, first of all, I'm not a fan of the concept of blood brothers. It's gross. But like. <laughs> That, I mean, it's not unheard of. Or like, okay, let's say that Harry decided that he's going to become a blood donor. Uh. Then, <laughs> like, <laughs> I'm just saying, like, it's a little bit weird that it, it I don't know, like, it, it makes more sense. Like, it makes it more poetic or better that it's, that Harry's blood is in Voldemort's veins. Um, because that just makes it, like, I just like the irony of the fact that Voldemort, like, was the one who made Harry immortal, basically, or not immortal, but, like, immortal while he's alive. Mm-hmm. Um, and that he did that himself. So, obviously, I prefer that. But it, it just seems a little bit too easy to me. Also, like, by the point that this is happening, don't you have, like, new blood? I mean, I, I don't really know how that works, but, like, does Harry's... Voldemort has the exact same blood in his body as he did three and a half years ago or three years I think, ago. I don't know if that's actually how it works biologically, but it's certainly <laughs> how it works in the magical world. Um, like that's what the concept of the love, love sacrifice means. But I, I think maybe we could say like the whole, um, 
Dumbledore um, gleam of triumph thing. Maybe what his real triumph gleam or triumphant gleam was about was him thinking, okay, good. So now I don't have to um, force Harry and Ron to be blood brothers uh, because that was going to be something he was going to have to do. Now I don't have to ensure that Harry goes and donates blood while he's still underage, because that was going to be a problem. That was going to be an ethical dilemma. In the muggle muggle world, you have to be 18 to donate blood. Actually, I think you only have to be 16, but you have to be 18, and Harry will be of age in the wizarding world, but he won't be able to be a blood donor. What if Dumbledore had just said, like, go to a blood drive in the muggle world while you're home for the summer and do that? But that he was like, okay, well, I can check that off my to-do list. Like he's that that's been taken care of. That's, that's the what the gleam, triumph, of, the gleam of triumph was more of a logistical. Like, okay, there's one thing I don't have to worry about. There's yeah. still there's still seven Horcruxes, and Harry's one of them. But at least we've got the blood thing taken care of. Yeah, um, I did want to mention one of our patrons, Gretchen, commented that she thinks that the gleam of triumph um, pays off perfectly, and it actually absolves Dumbledore of a lot of things um, regarding raising Harry to die. Um, and I think that's a really good point that Dumbledore has known about the blood sacrifice and the blood tying Harry to Voldemort's life for three um, years now. Um, and I do think that that does kind of, like she said, uh, absolve him a little bit because it's not like he was totally raising Harry to die because he knew that there was this this clue. And he, he says in the King's Cross chapter, like, he thought or he had a theory or he was pretty sure he had a guess, whatever it is. But um, I think that it, all of that stuff there... Um, does kind of make you feel like, okay, Dumbledore, he was raising Harry to die, but he also kind of did cover all his bases. Yeah, and I think that that's a really good point. I'm glad that Gretchen brought that up. And I don't think that we can say necessarily that it absolves him of all guilt um, because or all blame, but I think that it definitely helps. Like, And it definitely it makes him a little less evil seeming because he, he really was like 90% sure that his whole, I mean, and Dumbledore, you know, when Dumbledore is 90% sure that would be anyone else being 150% sure. So like he, he maybe didn't a hundred percent know, but he knew, you know, so it was, it's more justifiable. And that's a, another thing to add to my theory here where like Dumbledore saying like I had a guess or like I I thought I knew like that's Harry saying what he thinks Dumbledore thought in my in my perspective. Yeah. Whereas I think maybe the real Dumbledore would have said he knew for sure because we kind of have that proof in the in the parting of the ways chapter that that's what happened um, that he knew from that from that uh, jump like that Harry was going to survive and he wasn't actually just raising Harry to be murdered. Yeah, although I still think, like, this is consistent with how Dumbledore would speak. And like I said, Dumbledore might say, you know, I was fairly certain. But then, like, if that was any other person, it would be they were 150% sure. Like, you know, because I just think Dumbledore <laughs> is always very modest with his his beliefs and what he thinks he knows. That's he likes true. To, and he loves to downplay it and be like, well, I, I had a theory. Yes, um, that's that's true. That is how Dumbledore always is. Even if he actually was true, he would still say that it was just a theory or a guess or whatever. Um, so after Dumbledore starts talking about the, the blood sacrifice and Harry puts that together, Dumbledore says, you were the seventh Horcrux, um, the Horcrux he never meant to make. Um, and that, like, of all the things that Dumbledore reveals in this chapter or quote unquote reveals, this does feel like the detail that is the most 
original um, and not maybe something that Harry would have figured out himself. But at the same time, I do feel like Harry had all the information from the Snape memory, like about the part of Voldemort's soul. Like that's literally what a Horcrux is. So I, I do think that even though it is, Dumbledore putting this into words that he was the seventh Horcrux um, and that the part that that came back from him like or that that left him that night was like a Horcrux. Um, I do feel like Harry had all the tools to be able to figure that out himself as well. Oh, yeah. I think that part to me is less of a reveal because I think that, like you said, we already saw that in The Prince's Tale and he didn't say the word Horcrux, but he was talking to Snape. And so he was trying to guard exactly how he what he was saying so i think that it was pretty clear to us that harry was the horcrux um, yeah so it it is interesting though that like he does confirm that here yeah i think that that's a good point uh because i i just i i guess like when i read it the first time i felt like i didn't wasn't able to put into words that Harry was a seventh Horcrux until I read this chapter. But now that I think about it, I do think the readers, like you said, do have all that information that Harry has and could put it together without Dumbledore explicitly saying it. So um, that's what he keeps saying. Like he continues to go on to that path about like um, he was committing acts of unspeakable evil and he didn't just leave his body behind that night. He left part of himself latched to you. Like that, that is kind of the stuff that he already told Snape. Um, and he continues to say, like, that, like, the blood sacrifice is what keeps Harry alive, and that's what keeps Harry alive now that Voldemort has taken the blood. And, like, like we said, he then says, like, I guessed, but my guesses have usually been good. <laughs> right, which, like I said, that's how Dumbledore has always talked. And, I mean, that doesn't mean your theory's wrong, because it also yeah. could, I mean, Harry knows how Dumbledore talks, too, and so yeah. he can create, like, a sort of like a computer AI kind of Dumbledore that's going to use the same speech patterns and stuff. Yeah. Fine, you know, <laughs> so it, it's just, it is very consistent with how Dumbledore is. Right. So the next thing that they start talking about that Harry's really curious about is why did Harry's wand break the wand that Voldemort borrowed on the night of the seven potters? And this is probably something that I'm guessing you don't, totally like love or at least maybe fully <laughs> how did get you on guess? board with let's see some <laughs> wand lore comes into play well well i'm gonna just be all over that uh, to me it makes sense um and i i think that it is it's again kind of hairy to me filling in the blanks even though dumbledore's the one telling him and he says it's a guess and stuff i just think like the stuff that Dumbledore says about wands here is very similar to what Ollivander told Harry about wands back in the um, wand maker chapter, even though Ollivander didn't have the answer to the question. It's, it does kind of feel like what you said, like the, the idea of like a dream character giving you new information, even though it's not a real thing that's happening. Yeah. Um, so should we go through what Dumbledore's guess is here? Do you understand it? Do you want to take the lead on it or do you want me to try <laughs> Um, so I guess it's just that, like, okay, no, you go ahead and explain it. <laughs> well, I, me, I read I, it. I honestly, I read this chapter yesterday. I felt uh -huh. like I understood it enough, like as much as is possible from what's given to us here. And then 
uh, it's been since yesterday, so now I don't really remember. <laughs> okay, well, and I, I'm not going to say I'm super confident in understanding it. It makes sense to me when I read it, but like you said, like there are these really complicated things, but this is my understanding of it. So we already know about the, the twofold, like, twin cores and everything like that, um, and we already know about the blood, and the blood doesn't really have a ton to do with it, but I do think it has a little bit to do with it. So what I think happens is that when they had the Priori and Cantatum moment in the fourth book um the two wands connected and what happened was not only the fact that they had the twin cores but that harry's wand took some of the powers of voldemort's wand that night and it recognized the person who was wielding or wielding uh lucius's wand the night of the south seven powers so the harry's wand had a little bit of voldemort's wand in it and it recognized its previous owner that night so it was able to break the wand because it was had these powers against Voldemort. Yeah, and I get that. And that makes sense. And I, I know that Harry asks, like, well, then how how was Hermione just able to break my wand if my wand was so powerful? And, and Dumbledore says, well, because it was specifically that those powers were against Voldemort's wand. And so I, I buy that. That makes sense. I agree. I th- I'm fine with that explanation. And it's an interesting quote that says, your wand now contained the power of your enormous cor- courage and of Voldemort's own deadly skill. Um, so it's like a, a combination of like the purity of a Gryffindor and the like evil skill of, of Voldemort. Um, so that's why Harry, it's kind of funny. Dumbledore says, what chance to that poor stick of Lucius Malfoy stand? <laughs> Lucius. Oh, you sound like Lucius. You sound like you, Lucius. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like how that's like such a burn on Lucius. Lucius. That poor stick. <laughs> Like, uh, I mean, Lucius Malfoy is not like a, like, I mean, he's a fairly accomplished wizard. Um, yeah, definitely. <laughs> like, like, it's not like he's a total dunce or something. <laughs> right. It's not like it's Crab or Goyle. Right. Um, um, but, or but Crab, I mean, I, Crab I get, or Goyle Sr. I get it because it is paired. I mean, obviously, Lucius is, has never been brave <laughs> the way that Harry has, the courage right. that Harry has. And then... Uh, obviously no one is really a match for Voldemort as far as skill level. Right. That's a good point too. Um, but yeah, it's, I, I do think it's a good explanation where he says like the reason that Hermione was able to break the wand was simply because like the, the powers of Harry's wand were only directed against Voldemort. So I think it makes sense. I'm glad that you kind of seem to agree with me. It makes sense. It's a, it's still a little bit too convenient, but yeah. It, it it does make sense. I, I do buy it. It's fine. Okay. Well, that's fair, too. I, I agree that there are some parts of it that are very convenient. But... Well, because it's like, okay, I mean, well, how I, I do feel like that's one of those things where I can then see, like, J.K. Rowling thinking, well, how can we explain this then? Like, what's the yeah. out here? Oh, okay. Right. Well, it was just against Voldemort's wand that it was very right. powerful. Yeah. Um, so then Harry's thinking more, and he, he says, like, um, he killed me with your wand. Um, and this is like the transition into talking about the Elder Wand and the Deathly Hallows in a minute. But um, one thing that one of our patrons, Erin, pointed out last week that I wanted to, to bring up is that um, she, she mentioned as Harry is the true master of the Elder Wand, Voldemort would never have been able to kill him um, with the wand um, because that wand would naturally just choose that that piece of Voldemort's soul over Harry's because Harry is its master. So that's another part of why Harry wasn't going to be able to die that night. Yeah, which is which is a really good point. I'm glad that she brought that up. It's it's um still a little bit 
you know, wand lorry for me. So it's going to be a little <laughs> over my head. But I, I do feel like the weird thing to me about that is that, like, you can still win the Elder Wand from someone. It's not truly an unbeatable wand. I guess that's what annoys me about the Elder Wand. No, it's it's not an unbeatable. It, it's an unbeatable wand. It's not an un, It doesn't make the person invincible. But it, it is beatable as a wand. No, the person is beatable. But the wand can change allegiance, is what I'm saying. So it is beatable. When no, it's the person that's beatable though. Like the if the if the most powerful wizard in the world or or which was wielding that wand, it would be truly invincible. But like every every human is flawed. So every previous owner of the elder wand has been defeated. The wand was not defeated. The wand changed allegiance to the person who defeated the the owner of the wand. Hmm. Well, then it doesn't seem like it's that much power. <laughs> okay, well... To me, then right, it's like, well, okay, whatever. Who cares if you have that wand or not? I'm, and I know that's not the whole point of Aaron, <laughs> what Aaron brought up. But I just don't totally get the, like, it, it has an allegiance to whoever. It's just so weird. I don't know. Okay, well, we'll move <laughs> on. <laughs> no, I think we, Aaron brought up a really good point And that, you know, Harry was doubly protected there. Um, right. So he... Yeah, but I just, like I said, the Elder Wand, that's the worst hallow to me for sure. Okay, well. <laughs> if, if you're, the Resurrection Stone is your worst hallow, the Elder Wand is by far my worst hallow. Well, okay, and the Resurrection Stone, I don't want to say it's my worst hallow <laughs> or my least favorite <laughs> hallow. I just, because I, when we talked about it in the, um, the Deathly Hallows chapter, I definitely had a lot of things to say about how much I think the Resurrection Stone means. I, But it's not... Yeah, I, well, that's that's all live in the canon, so people can go back and listen to that. <laughs> anyway, um, so Harry then asks where they are, um, and he says that Dumbledore asks where he thinks they are, and and Harry says that he thinks it looks like King's Cross Station, but it's a lot cleaner and empty, and there are no trains. And like you said, Dumbledore starts laughing at him. <laughs> good, good gracious, really? <laughs> Does he say it? Does he say it in that accent? Good gracious! Uh, <laughs> good gracious, gracious Potter! <laughs> yeah. Well, no, and I do feel how... like I do feel like it, <laughs> I. It is a little annoying. Like I can imagine, especially because Harry, as a seventeen-year-old here, like it's it's pretty annoying when you say something and like somebody laughs at you like oh you silly little child yeah and so like I do feel like that's a little bit but I I don't I never have felt like that that was Dumbledore's intention I feel like Dumbledore just like was amused by Harry like I don't think that he thought it was stupid no I don't think so I think he just was surprised and taken aback because he didn't know what it looked like so but this is Dumbledore this this is as they say your party (laughs) that's what annoys you Okay. Well, it annoys Harry. Um, I love how Harry glares at Dumbledore. (laughs) Yeah, he's like, okay. (laughs) I'll not do that right now. I have always loved that because I feel like, well, it definitely plays into your theory of this is all in Harry's mind, um, but still real. um, And that Harry can determine what's going on for himself. Um, But to me, it also... I guess to me, this is more of like a afterlife thing where it's like maybe each person's afterlife in the wizarding world is going to be sort of determined by them and their consciousness, which is similar to a, the concept of a dream. 
Um, but that like Dumbledore is interacting with Harry, but this is not where Dumbledore always is. Right. I think that 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 does play into the afterlife idea that but again, it it goes into both because I think the afterlife, if you're looking at it from the perspective that seems to be created in this book, at least um, or in the series, is that it is what you make of it. Um, And so for Dumbledore, like it might be like a a meadow or something. And then for Harry, it's King's Cross because King's Cross does represent so much about what Harry loves in his life of like the journey to Hogwarts and like taking, being transported away from the the life of pain that he lived at the Dursleys. The other thing I want to be clear on is that I don't think this is where Harry would be forever. Like how Dumbledore is saying like he would board a train um, and go further on um, if he decided not to, not to return to life. Um, so I don't think I think this is more of like a way station, and that's part of why I mean the King's Cross is again symbolic, like chosen for this scene because um, because it's supposed to be like sort of an in between stage. Yeah, no, and yeah, you're totally right that it's not that's not where Harry would be spending the rest of his afterlife if that's where he chose. But he's so boring. Um, I'm yeah. like in this giant white room. Yeah, I like but I do like, think in like some sort of institution. Right. <laughs> um, so before we keep going with the rest of this uh, chapter, we do want to jump into um, a word from our sponsor for today's episode. So today's episode is brought to you by Bombas. Uh, working out is hard. It's always been hard. Even when it's easy, it's still pretty hard. Bombas socks can't change that, but they can make it more comfortable. So if your resolution this year is to get fit, start by getting socks that can keep up every step of the way. Whether you're very into sports or planning on getting very into sports, Bombas can help with performance socks in styles made specially for basketball, tennis, running, golf, and more. They're made with a lightweight poly cotton blend, which means no matter how hard you're working, your feet will always stay cool, dry, and comfortable, never sweaty. Um, I can definitely attest to that. They're, they're my favorite socks that I have. They're so comfortable and warm. They don't make my feet sweat. Um, I try to wear them every day that I can, and I, I just love my Bombas socks. So if you were at King's Cross Station and you suddenly realized you were naked and you needed clothes, Bombas socks would be the first thing you'd reach for? Definitely. First of all, most comfortable piece of clothing I own. Second of all, most important thing to have covered. (laughs) Yes. Um, So people do a lot of different things to stay active. So Bombas made a lot of different performance socks designed for everything from running to hiking to cycling and more. If you're constantly having to pause your treadmill to adjust twisted, bunched-up socks, that's enough to make anybody ready to quit. So that's why Bombas are designed with left-right contouring and a Y-stitched heel, so they stay perfectly in place. Bombas socks provide support in places you didn't even know you needed, like your arches. Each sock is built with a special arch support system that's supportive but not too tight. It's like a nice hug, but on your foot. A foot hug. So supportive but not too tight. That's kind of like the relationship that Dumbledore has with Harry. Definitely not too tight. He doesn't get too close. <laughs> exactly. Um, but so have you ever very supportive? Right. Exactly. <laughs> um, yeah. And have you ever noticed that annoying toe seam that most socks have? That little ridge on the top. Bombas got rid of it. Um, it's just smooth sailing all the way across the top of your foot. And that sounds like magic, honestly. Um, it really is. Sounds like it would be the sock that you would find in King's Cross. The perfect sock. Um. Finally, did you know that socks are the number one most requested item in homeless shelters? Bombas socks were created to change that. For every pair that you buy, Bombas donates a pair to someone in need. So go to bombas.com slash realweird today and get 20% off your first purchase. 
That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash real weird for 20% off. Bombas dot com slash real weird. And that brings us right back into our episode. Um, so Harry's going to bring up the concept of the Deathly Hallows, and he's really annoyed with Dumbledore right now. So it says <laughs> he was glad to see that the words wiped the smile from Dumbledore's face. <laughs> Harry's uh, like, ha, 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 make him squirm. It's funny because, and this is something that I've always loved, because it's like when you miss someone so much, um, and I know it's it, you feel like you would, like especially in a situation where someone has died, and you feel like you would give anything just to see them again, have one more conversation with them. But then, like, I just feel like this is so accurate that you'd be back with them and that you might get annoyed with them within a couple of minutes. Like, if it's some, <laughs> like, if this is not, this is not as morbid, but like, Martha, when we haven't been together in a while, like, obviously, I'm really psyched <laughs> to see you again. But then we end up, like, getting into, like, a little bickering thing, like, within, like, 10 minutes of seeing each other. <laughs> what what are you talking about <laughs> do you know what I mean like I feel like you you when you're away from someone you think like oh well when I see them again like we're we're gonna be like 100% simpatico and we're <laughs> we're just gonna be on the same page on everything but then in reality like the people you love are the people you get most annoyed with <sighs> well okay I don't I, get this is all news to me <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean I really don't but thank you <laughs> I guess I guess that you are not annoyed with me. Never. <laughs> no, um, I agree. Uh, th- it's a good parallel. It, and I actually, I do feel like the idea of like somebody that you love who who's died, like even that would be a very similar uh, reaction. Like uh, maybe somebody that you've like idealized in your head just because they've died. And then you, if you were to reunite with them, the the things that you didn't always appreciate about them might kind of be like it might even be a little bit tougher to reconcile because you've (laughs) forgotten about that stuff you're like what you're not acting like the perfect angel i remembered you as yeah it's it's hard because obviously we don't know what that would really be like nobody does but like i just feel like i i love that it's not just 100 percent dumbledore being perfect So I really like that we have this sort of conflict and that Harry does feel annoyed at Dumbledore. (laughs) I just love that. It's so like humanizing. I agree. Um, So yeah, Harry, or Dumbledore starts begging for forgiveness and Harry's like confused. Um, He sees that Dumbledore is um, pleading with him and he actually has tears in his eyes. And um, Dumbledore then talks about how the, the Hallows are a lure for fools and he was a huge fool. And this is where I, I get that Harry could have come up with all of this in his mind, but I, I feel like, and, and I see that this is Harry reconciling with Dumbledore too. Um, but I do feel like this is important for Dumbledore's character, not just for Harry, um, that Dumbledore makes these amends with Harry. And that I think that I really do feel like that Dumbledore would, would want to, would want to apologize and and feels so guilty for what he did as a young man. I think you're right. And I I do think, um, like we said earlier, it doesn't necessarily disprove either side because I think this is what Harry wants Dumbledore to, to act like. And I think it's also Harry knowing that, knowing Dumbledore well enough to know that this is what Dumbledore himself would have wanted to do too. So I don't think it necessarily means that Dumbledore, like if, if we are going with my, my thought of this all, literally all being in Harry's head and Dumbledore not being really Dumbledore. Um, Like, even if that is the case, it doesn't mean that it's not what Dumbledore would have been doing. I think Harry knows Dumbledore well enough to know that this is what Dumbledore would have done. It's not just what Harry wants to hear from Dumbledore. 
Yeah, and it, it's really powerful, I think, to see Dumbledore um, really working through everything that he's um, that he's like wanted to say but hasn't, and and that he's felt guilty about his whole life. Um, so I and I find it it it's sweet too because here Harry has definitely grappled with Dumbledore and the Hallows throughout the course of this book. Um, but here we see that Dumbledore, or I mean, Harry is defending Dumbledore and he's saying like, well, you're, of course you're better than Voldemort. You never killed if you could avoid it. And he's, um, you know, he's, he's justifying everything to Dumbledore, even though he's been mad at Dumbledore about it too. Right. It says literally like how odd it was to defend Dumbledore from himself. Um, and yeah, I think it's a really beautiful thing to think about that, that Harry is explaining to Dumbledore why what he did was a, well, not not okay, but why he's been forgiven for it. Um, and Dumbledore's, Dumbledore says, like, was I better ultimately than Voldemort? And Harry says, like, you didn't seek it. This you didn't seek the same thing he did, or in the same way he did. Um, like, it's not the same thing um, because he wasn't doing the same. You know, might have been similar ends, but it wasn't the same means. Yeah, and I think that. Like, it's really important that Harry has gotten to this this stage where he's the one now defending Dumbledore, um, even though I think he knows that Dumbledore messed up. Obviously, he knows that. But he's the one defending him now, so it's not just, like... I think that that shows that Harry really, truly has forgiven him. I totally agree. Um, so... He asks Dumbledore more of the details and Dumbledore starts talking a little bit more about Grindelwald. And it's not really new information again. I think it's it's more we're seeing it from, quote unquote, Dumbledore's perspective, whatever you think the, this person is. Um, and Harry then asks about the Peverils, whether they were real. And Dumbledore says, like, he thinks that they were the real people. But the whole, like, story of death, like that more likely was like just a legend that sprung up around them. Which I think is, like, a cool way of thinking about it. Um, just because, like, I do think that that's how a lot of sort of, like, legend-type stories come to be. Like, there's an element of truth to them, and then um, some of those aspects get added to them later on. Yeah, I totally agree. And Dumbledore even says, like, he thinks it's probably very likely that the Peveril brothers themselves were the ones who created them. Um, so I think that that's interesting. The Peverils, like... I don't want to say I necessarily want to, well, I don't know. You know, that could be a really cool, fun, like, spinoff of Harry Potter, like, as a TV show. I think it could be, too. Um, like, I sometimes wish I get, it wasn't. Sometimes I get bored thinking about, like, stuff that's super far in the past. Like, the setting bores me. But I started to think, like, it could almost be a little bit Game of Thronesy. It could be. Um, I just kind of wish it wasn't three men. Like, oh, yeah, that's true, was, too. I wish there was one woman, at least. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, of course, maybe they had wives or whatever. That would be really interesting, too, though. Yeah, that that could be interesting. Yeah, the the, the three wives. Well, we know that the, the second brother didn't get married. He wanted to get married to the lady that died. Well, she could be really interesting to learn more about she her story. Be. And then, I true. mean, obviously, well, okay, I don't want to say obviously they had wives, but obviously they have descendants. So right. they clearly had women in their lives. So it, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to just focus on the brothers. We could have it be all the people around them. That's true. That could be pretty cool. I am starting to get on board with this. I'm actually super interested in it now because we really don't know anything about them. I mean, 
all, I guess, okay, I shouldn't say anything, but we really don't know very many details about them. And I would love to see some of the legends that kind of, or some of the stuff that kind of contributed to the legend. Yeah, I think that could be a really cool TV show. Yeah, it would be pretty awesome. Well, so. hopefully that that happens. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, or anyway. maybe we'll be the ones to do it. Yeah, maybe we will. We have so much filmmaking um, experience and knowledge. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, so then Dumbledore keeps going about talking about um, how they're the the possessor of the cloak. And Harry, me? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Like, yes, Harry, I think you already figured out that you're descended from Ignotus Peveril. Yeah, totally. Since he was in Godric's Hollow and that the cloak was in Godric's Hollow and... Yeah, I'm pretty sure they already even said that. Like, Hermione came up with that. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> so Dumbledore then continues. He talks about how he had the cloak the night the par- that James and Lily died. And Harry has to say, like, he says to him, like, that wouldn't have helped them survive anyway. Like, Voldemort wasn't looking for them. He knew where they were. Yeah, so again, this is a situation where Dumbledore is being forgiven by Harry or Harry is forgiving Dumbledore for something that he was even a little bit like, I feel like Harry was a little bit like, well, why did Dumbledore have the cloak that night? Like he, if my dad would have had it, he could have survived. Um, But Harry here, he's saying what he knows to be true, which is that the cloak wouldn't have been enough. Um, And I do think it's interesting where Harry says here, the cloak wouldn't have made them curse proof. And it's kind of funny, like the actual concept of the, the invisibility cloak, like, the, the third brother asked for something that would protect him from death and death just gave the invisibility cloak. He didn't give like a shield cloak or something. Um, so it's kind yeah. of interesting because that would have been a pretty powerful thing to ask for. Yeah. A shield cloak would have been cool. Like, well, invisibility slash shield. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it, in the story, it kind of is that way because it's protecting him from death, but I guess not exactly the same thing. Yeah. So then Dumbledore says, like, you cannot despise me more than I despise myself, because he then launches into talking about um, his family and all the stories with um, Ariana and with his father and with everything. And he just is so, so hard on himself about everything that happened. Well, and this is where I think it's very powerful to see um, Dumbledore himself speaking about this stuff, because... I think it's one thing for us to hear Aberforth say that he felt like his brother wanted more than just caring for his sister and he felt like his brother wanted glory and wanted power. But to hear Dumbledore admit it, um, I think that that's really challenging for Dumbledore to do because I think at this point, I mean, he spent all these years like trying to suppress that side of himself. Um, And then so for him to flat out say like, no, I, I wanted... I was gifted. I was brilliant. I wanted to escape. I wanted to shine. I wanted glory. Um, that's that's really powerful to hear Dumbledore admit that. And I know for you, it's Harry's mind having Dumbledore admit that. But to me, it's Dumbledore saying like that really was how I felt, and that you know that's what was my downfall in that time. Well, and even if it is Harry saying it as Dumbledore, Harry's manifestation of Dumbledore saying, I do think this is how Dumbledore feels, um, or Dumbledore felt as an adult, um, before he died at least. Um, and so I think like 
again, even if it's not the real Dumbledore saying it, it doesn't make it any less powerful for me. In fact, it almost makes it more powerful because it's showing to me how well Harry knew Dumbledore and how much Dumbledore meant to Harry that Harry's able to put all these pieces together of like realizing what Dumbledore saw the night that he died in the potion and in the mirror of Erised and all those different things that are coming back that are parts of Harry's relationship with Dumbledore. Um, I, I think like this is what Dumbledore would have said, even if this isn't the real Dumbledore. Yeah. Um, I agree. I mean, you can see it both ways for sure. So then he, he like you, like you said, he's, he's talking about how he resented his family and he resented having to take care of his family um, after his father was sent to Azkaban and after his mother died. And Grindelwald was this very, uh temptuous figure to Dumbledore where he represented um this idea of of revolution and um being triumphant over the people who had hurt his family um and that's really sad to see definitely very sad to see um interesting to see how like I mean, how knowing what we know now about Dumbledore and Grindelwald's relationship or what J.K. Rowling's intention was here. This is, again, a time when it would have been, like, had this book come out now, maybe we would have gotten more information about Grindelwald or their relationship and known that it was more than just, like, a, more than just, like, a platonic, like, love that they had between them. And so I would be interested, I don't know, it's just, it's it's always a little bit of a letdown anytime we read about Grindelwald that, like, we feel like the information is not all there. Yeah, that's true. It's it's definitely there's a lot of gaps in the story that I guess were maybe intentional, maybe not. Um, but they do the, leave room for. I mean, something. the way that the way that we can justify it is just thinking like, okay, well, maybe Dumbledore didn't really want to go there with Harry, like tell him like all of this stuff from his past. Um, that's really personal. Uh, but and like Harry's seventeen and Dumbledore, it's kind of weird to talk about like your pr- past relationships with like a student. But at the same time, like, I don't know. I feel like yeah. it wouldn't have hurt to say, like, that just something like that he loved him like he'd never loved anyone else or something like that. Yeah. Even that, because that, like, that kind of thing is in old books all the time. And it's not even supposed to be, like, opening the door for an LGBT relationship. <laughs> like, it, like I just feel like it, it could have been there, like, even if it wasn't supposed to show that they were in love with each other or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, like, just something about like how much I loved him, like something, even something mysterious like that. Could yeah, have because been I, I really there, feel I like it was a huge blindside when she um, said that Dumbledore was gay, because I feel like there wasn't really a lot of hints about it in the book. Like there, no. there could have been more hints at the very least. Yeah, well, that's that's what we're. Uh, I mean, we we've definitely talked about that before. So we're, that's not what this, the point of this chapter is. Mm-hmm. But you're right that yeah. it is there. That it, I wish it was more in this chapter. Um, so we we continue with Dumbledore talking about um, this whole Grindelwald thing and the concept of the Deathly Hallows, and he then talks about how um, what they what they were seeking. Um, with becoming masters of death and um, then it says reality returned in the form of my rough unlettered and infinitely more admirable brother Um, and he didn't want to hear what what Aberforth said to him um, but Aberforth was what brought him back to reality and then the the argument turned into poor Ariana's death yeah and I think um, the Ariana's death story has always been 
very realistic to me just because I think everybody knows the feeling of like getting swept up in something and then taking it too far. And then there's been a mistake made that you can't take back. Um, and obviously this is a lot more extreme than I think most people have experienced, hopefully, um, where somebody dies, but like it is, it is very like, I've always felt like I could relate to Dumbledore in that moment where it's like, you know, that feeling of regret and you know, that feeling of like, kind of like not realizing that your actions are going to really be destructive um, and that you wish you could go back in time, but you can't. Um, and so this is, yeah, I just feel really bad for all the parties involved here. Um, but I do feel really bad for Dumbledore because like he, he didn't mean for that to happen, but at the same time he has some real culpability and that makes it worse. Like just to have to live with that kind of knowing that you definitely played a role in this. Totally. Um, I think that's a really good point that it is something that I think other people can relate to, obviously, hopefully not to the same degree, like you said, but this idea of like feeling totally blown or like swept away by something that you're like so excited about and then not realizing the full repercussions of it until something horrible happens. Um, that That's a really good way of looking at it. It's something that people have experienced um, or it's kind of a, a human experience. Um, and yeah, Dumbledore, his emotions here are, are really hard to see. He says he gives a little gasp and is crying in earnest and Harry comforts him. Um, he grips Dumbledore's arm tightly. Um, and it, it's very, very reminiscent of the scene before or the scene in the cave. Um, Dumbledore's emotions here and Harry supporting him as well. Right. And we also do get confirmation about how Dumbledore really is afraid of finding out that he might have been the one who killed Ariana. And I think that um, we talked about that at some point too, and that, that that is a fear that Dumbledore had or the guilt too, and that he had, but just he, he, they didn't know who was the one who actually killed Ariana. And he was very afraid to find out that he may have been the one. Yeah. And that's, I mean, this is, another like reveal I guess that that's what Dumbledore's greatest fear is and that's what he like was that's why he was afraid of confronting Grindelwald like that is kind of new information again it, it is like Dumbledore's insight um and makes you think maybe this is the real Dumbledore here um again same thing I've been saying that I do think it's also Harry it could be Harry just this like figuring out what he thinks Dumbledore would say. Um, but he says like, that's what his greatest fear always was. And I think that this is kind of going into um, Dumbledore's house as well, because um, a lot of people question why Dumbledore is a Gryffindor instead of a Ravenclaw or even a Slytherin, um, because he does have some sort of Slytherin things. But I think this, what his greatest fear um, is, is indicative, I think of a Gryffindor side, because what he's afraid of is that he like his actions more so than his his mind like he's afraid of what he did as like he that he wasn't the the hero that a Gryffindor would strive to be that he actually like was so caught up by power that he his own actions were what caused his greatest downfall right and I do think that also like the fact that he even though he did have this terrible fear that he would find that out um, he still did go up against Grindelwald. It took him a little bit longer, like he said, than he should have waited. Um, but he did go up against him because ultimately he knew that was what he had to do and that was the right thing to do. So that's another, you know, point in, towards the Gryffindor fate aside because, yeah, showing that he did face his fear, even though he, 
I don't know that. I guess I guess Harry doesn't ask, and and we're not, we don't get confirmation about whether or not it was Dumbledore um, who had killed Ariana. But it's possible that Dumbledore did find out. Yeah, it's it's creepy because um well not creepy but uncomfortable because Harry says like he decides like not to ask Dumbledore whether he ever found out and okay that's another point in my like my theory because I think like that's something that Harry couldn't have that that would have been a definitive thing that he could have gotten that he can't get because it's all in his head um so it says but it does say like he didn't want to know and even less did he want Dumbledore to have to tell him and that's obviously very um very true and very powerful to think about and awful i mean it's very compassionate of harry because i think like it's really i like seeing that harry remembers that dumbledore is a human because i think that all of us like as readers i mean i'm i'm glad i'm fine we don't know I think it, it makes the whole story more powerful both ways because first of all, I would not want to know that Dumbledore had accidentally killed Ariana. That would be depressing and really hard to rectify that with everything we know. But then at the same time, like if we knew that he didn't kill Ariana, then I think we would be more likely to excuse him for things. So I like that we don't find out as readers, but I think that all of the readers are like, I do feel like there, there's that element of curiosity of like, well, just ask him. Um, and I'm I'm glad that Harry doesn't cave into that. Like he he really feels so much compassion for Dumbledore that he doesn't want to have. He really doesn't want Dumbledore to have to tell him. Yeah, and he doesn't want to know himself either. Like I I think you're right that there is kind of a curiosity as a reader. I personally am glad to not know. Like you said, like I I kind of would rather have that be a gray area for Dumbledore. I I don't even really want to know that he didn't do it. I would hate to know that Aberforth did it. Um that would be awful. Obviously everybody wants it to be Grindelwald if you want anything, you know, like that's that's what would be the the most um like not satisfying. It's awful to say, but um it would be the the least like you Grindelwald's already an awful that. character. Yeah. yeah. But um, like but, but I totally agree. Yeah, like I, I think it's more powerful that we don't know for sure that Dumbledore didn't do it because like like then I like I said, then you would be more likely to be like, okay, well he didn't actually kill Ariana, so he's less guilty. That, yeah, that would be a very very results oriented kind of take, and that wouldn't be really what I would want either. So mm-hmm. you're right. Um, yeah. So as they continue, then Harry actually tries to kind of defend Grindelwald in a way. He says like Grindelwald tried to stop Voldemort going after the wand, and he lied and said that he never had it. Um, and that's kind of a a, a very touching moment too because Harry's trying to comfort Dumbledore by almost like defending Grindelwald I think that Dumbledore like does still obviously have like I don't know that he's still in love with Grindelwald I wouldn't go as far as to say that I feel like it's been so long and like he's definitely learned a lot and has like come a long way in that time it's been like 80 years since that all went down so like I think it'd be a little bit silly to say that he was still in love with Grindelwald but I think it does make him maybe feel a little bit better just to know that this person that he used to be in love with has more humanity than Voldemort does. Yeah. Um, it's so weird that it's 80 years ago, but that's so true. Um, yeah, I, I think you're right that it, it, Dumbledore is not like, like hung up on Grindelwald, but it does give him a little bit of solace to think that, um, he may have shown a little bit of remorse in later years. Um, so, yeah, then Dumbledore is dabbing his eyes still, and they continue then to talk about the Resurrection Stone. And Dumbledore, this is an odd kind of 
maybe inconsistency because he says like he forgot that it was a horcrux and immediately put it on what's weird is that that's not how you use the resurrection stone you don't wear a ring of it you're supposed to turn it over in your hand three times uh, so it's kind of odd that Dumbledore was like oh I've got to put this on my finger well I think he just wasn't quite thinking clearly because he saw the yeah. um saw the resurrection stone and kind of just like blacked out there for a second yeah, I think that's probably true. It's also very weird to me that Dumbledore does wear the ring later on after it's been destroyed. <laughs> but I guess that's him trying to give Harry a clue or whatever. Is it? I don't really know what it is. I think it is because he he's like very pleased when Dumbledore or when Harry like puts it together that he saw Dumbledore wearing the ring after he sees the memory. Yeah. Um. I don't know. I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> so then uh, they talk about the, the resurrection stone a little bit more and he Dumbledore says that he was a fool and he was unworthy to unite the Deathly Hallows. Um, and then he says, maybe a man in a million could unite the Hallows, Harry. Um, and, you know, this is, Harry is that man in a million. This is where if it is Harry's mind yeah. up with all of it, it's kind of like, well, humble brag to you, Harry. Kudos to you, Harry, yes. that you feel that you're the man in the million. I mean, I love that. <laughs> he, he is. But that's where that's where I prefer to think that this is not just Harry's consciousness cre- or subconsciousness creating this. It's a combination of factors. I, I don't see it as not Harry's mind. This is where, like, I don't know. I don't see it as not Harry's mind, but I do see it as, like, something beyond Harry as well. Um, yeah. And so just because I don't think Harry thinks that way. Like, I that is something Dumbledore would say about Harry. That is not something that Harry would come up with about himself. Like, he, ha- <laughs> it's just corn. Like, it would be kind of like, okay, Harry, like, chill out on yourself. <laughs> I kind of like it if that is what he said, or if that is him saying that. But, um, yeah, I, um, the, Harry doesn't totally unite the house. He, he has the two, he has the resurrection stone and the cloak at the same time. And then he has the cloak and the wand at the same time. Cause he leaves the resurrection stone in the woods, but he is capable of uniting the hallows. And I think he knows that. <laughs> yeah. And he kind of, he's kind of proud of himself, but I am, right. the chosen one. I am the man of the million. <laughs> yeah. Um, Dumbledore then says like he was fit only to possess the meanest of them, the least extraordinary. I was fit to own the elder wand and not to boast of it and not to kill with it. Um, because I took it not for game, but to save others from it. Yeah. And I think that that, that is interesting. It shows that the elder wand is lame. Um, it backs my theory <laughs> up. <laughs> um, but it also like, I think that, I think that that's kind of true with all of the Hallows. If you're going to be fit to use them, you have to take it not for gain, but to save others from it or or with it. Right. And that's what Harry. That's why Harry is the man in the million because he he. That's what he does with. I mean, the the invisibility cloak. I guess he's been a little bit more for his own personal gain sometimes, but like the, if he had the wand, it would be for that purpose. And if he had the stone, it's he has that that desire but he's able to like tamp it down for the time uh but to your point about harry using the cloak about uh, for personal gain it does actually kind of seem like the cloak is the one hallow that could be used for personal gain so long as you are the actual descendant of ignotus peveril 
Yeah, because I feel like uh, the the cloak is the least dangerous to begin with. It was always kind of like the moral of the story was that the cloak was the smartest one to take. Um, And like, yeah, so I think that it's okay to kind of like goof off with the cloak a little bit. But the other two, that's why I think (laughs) Harry, like that's why I said, that's why I think Harry is the person who could unite the Hallows because it's never been just about him. It's always about the greater good, I guess, and in more than the, the way that good. right in more than the way that Dumbledore and Grindelwald meant that right exactly um yeah and Harry then asks like why did you have to make it so difficult and this is I love this layer of it that Dumbledore says that he was counting on Hermione to slow Harry up like he says I uh was hoping that she would like uh be very uh very skeptical and um, keep you from like getting dominated by your hot head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's funny that, that Dumbledore saw Hermione in that way. And it's kind of like put, put her as like an obstacle towards the hallows. And I mean, in a good way, because he's showing that Hermione or he knows that Hermione has such a good head on her shoulders. Yeah. Um, what's funny is that he says that he, uh, was counting on Hermione for that, but then also Hermione is the whole like connection of she's the one who f- saw the sign of the Hallows first. So he was giving her the tools, but also knowing that she'd be more skeptical than Harry. Yeah. Um, and I, I do want to say like D- Dumbledore lays out exactly what we're talking about as far as like why Harry could unite it. He says like, um, the cl- yeah, that I guess Dumbledore took the cloak out of vain curiosity, but Harry's the true owner. You have to you have to be a descendant to be able to really use the cloak, right? Um, the stone Dumbledore would have used as an attempt to drag back those who are at peace, rather than to enable his self sacrifice, like the way that Harry did. And that's I really like the way that that's phrased. It's like it's it's used to enable his self sacrifice. Like that's just I love that. Yeah, that is a really beautiful quote because it does explain everything um, that happened in the previous chapter. Um, and again, it's this. Oh, like, it explains everything. Here, well, explains parts. <laughs> it explains the meaning behind it. Um, yeah, maybe a little bit too much. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, but it is also funny if you think that that's Harry patting himself up back on the back, um, or his subconscious patting himself on the back. <laughs> it is, yeah. Uh, humble brag to you, Harry. Congrats. You are the word. You are the worthy possessor of the Hallows, Harry. And then I like how Dumbledore patted Harry's hand, and Harry looked up at the old man and smiled. He could not help himself. How could he remain angry with Dumbledore now? Now that he's given him the compliment. <laughs> but it's so sweet. Um, I do love I no, just love that sweet. idea of like looking into Dumbledore's face and just feeling like he can't be mad at him. I, I think that that's really beautiful, too. And this part of what makes this chapter so ch- so touching, even if it isn't the real Dumbledore, and I think it even is more touching it if, it's, if it is Dream Dumbledore or Harry's fake subconscious Dumbledore. Like, every everything in this book has come back to Dumbledore um, from the beginning. He's the first wizard we see, um, and, or the first wizard we meet by name. Um, and I just, I love this this reconciliation, this reuniting of them, even if it's not real, like, even if it's not physically real, of course it's real. Yeah, um, it's it's pretty perfect, and I, I do love that as well. Yeah. Our so, first real weirdo that we have, our first real weirdo that we ever had, Martha. 
Yes, exactly. And it all comes back to Dumbledore. Um, so, yeah, so they finally um, start talking about the Elder Wand a little bit more. And what Dumbledore says is that he is pretty sure that Voldemort never knew about the Hallows, but he expected him to go after the wand because that was something that everybody like uh, was part of wizard legend. Like he was pretty sure Voldemort would have heard about the elder wand and would try to go after it. Um, so he says like, um, for him, the elder wand for Voldemort, the elder wand has become an obsession to rival his obsession with you, meaning Harry. And he thinks that it's going to make him truly invincible, like beyond the battle with Harry. Like he, Voldemort, is kind of seeing the Elder Wand as his tool to invincibility for the rest of his days. Poor Severus. Yeah, so this part is fascinating to me because Harry asks Dumbledore, um, he says, like, you're, you planned for Snape to end up with the Elder Wand, didn't you? And Dumbledore says, like, that didn't work as I intended, did it? Um, and we know, of course, that what what Harry's going to figure out on his own, Dumbledore's not going to explain it to him here, but Harry's going to figure it out and reveal to the readers in the Flan Plan chapter, next chapter, that Dumbledore, or that when Draco disarmed Dumbledore on the astronomy tower, Draco became master of the Elder One, and then back in Malfoy Manor, Harry disarmed Draco, making Harry just the master of the Elder One. So it's fascinating to me here that Dumbledore and Harry kind of tiptoe around the subject of who the true master of the Elder Wand is. It's such a great authorial choice to not have Dumbledore explain it here. Um, but it's interesting too, because it's a part of Dumbledore's plan that was flawed. Um, because if Dumbledore planned for Snape to be the master of the elder wand, Snape wouldn't have died. Um, Snape would have survived because if Dumbledore, if Voldemort had ended up with the elder wand, like he couldn't have killed Snape with the elder wand and Snape would, or I mean, I guess he tried to kill Snape with Nagini anyway. Um, but like Snape probably wouldn't have died, but Harry also wouldn't have never had that part of it. Um, so like the battle that was, going to ensue after the horcrux part of harry died harry wouldn't have had that protection working for him he just would have been going against somebody with an invincible wand that wasn't really working for him the way it was supposed to so that it's interesting that dumbledore's plan was not or at least according to dream dumbledore it was not originally part of the plan for harry to end up with elder wand yeah it is really interesting and i think that i don't know this is one of those times where like Dumbledore, I don't know. It, it's almost like I love, I always love this metaphor of like, if you saw a sculpture and you, and there was a, a really great, like, you know, it was a sculpture of a person and you noticed that it had some really great definition and that it was like this, this, the arms like really, like the veins really stood out. And then you realized later that like the, the um, sculptor kind of like had accidentally spilled the clay there. It doesn't make it so that the sculpture is like less valuable or like it actually adds definition to the sculpture, even though that wasn't the sculptor's intent. So that's how I feel uh -huh. about Dumbledore in this case. It's like he kind of he messed up a tiny bit, but it, at the same time, it made his plan better. And so like it didn't take away from what he was trying to do and it enhanced it. And so it doesn't really matter that it wasn't his plan. Yeah, that's a really beautiful way of looking at it, Alice. Wow, that metaphor. Where'd you come up with that? <laughs> no, I didn't come up with that metaphor originally. I, I learned about that in uh, in high school, actually, from an English teacher who came up, who said that as a, a reason that authorial intent is not really important. Because if those details are there anyway, even if the author didn't put them there on purpose, 
we can still take value from them. And so I've always thought about it that way, but I, I see that for Dumbledore's plan here as well. Yeah, I really like that. Um, I think that that's really beautiful. And it it is interesting to think about his intention and it not really being exactly how it worked out. But I also just love that Harry here, I don't know if he's fully figured out who the true master of the Elder Wand is, but he's going to figure it out on his own. And I don't, and I really am happy that we don't have Dumbledore explaining it to him. Um, yeah, I, I and don't it, think Dumbledore makes, would have wanted it that way. It does, like you said, it makes such a better reveal too in the moment when we yes. find that out from in the moment. Like if we found that out right now and then went, went back into battle with Harry, it'd be kind of like, okay, cool. So this is all going to work out. But now it's like, we get to find out as Harry reveals it. And it's, it's a lot more dramatic that way. Yes, totally. Um, so Harry says that the two of them sit there without talking for the longest time. Um, and Harry's sitting there realizing um, what's going to happen next. And he says, I've got to go back. And Dumbledore says he's got a choice. And this is really important because uh, this, this was the nail in the coffin for me of figuring out that this is all Harry's own consciousness to me because what Dumbledore says to Harry is that if he decided not to go back he could board a train and Dumbledore Harry says where would that take me and Dumbledore's response is on and on is the word that nearly headless Nick says to to Harry about why Sirius would not have come back as a ghost he says like Sirius would have gone on and the word going on like I know that that's not unique to Harry Potter but that's the exact phrasing that Harry has heard two years before this um, of what it means to go to die. Um, and that to me is what seals the deal that this is Harry talking or this is Harry's consciousness. See, and and I see it a little differently. I, I see what you're saying because that does, it all makes sense. What your whole theory, I completely get it. But to me, it's not just that that's how nearly headless Nick has described it. It's that that's the way it is in the magical world. And I feel like, Harry's at this weird in-between stage right now. Like we said, he's at this place where he could board a train to continue on. So I do feel like he's getting most of the story, but he's not going to have the whole picture unless he went on. And so Dumbledore coming back to him and talking to him, he can't, he's not going to be able to reveal to Harry. Maybe not, maybe that he's, maybe it's not that he's like restricted from revealing it, but it's like, you can't explain that to someone who hasn't been there. So to me, I see it as like Dumbledore is saying on because that's the way that they describe it in the magical world. And that's what that's how Dumbledore has kind of looked at it before, too. And that that's how much Harry could comprehend at that moment in time. Like he he can't know what's beyond that point in, unless he actually got on the train um, metaphorically, that more metaphorical train. Um, so to me, I still see it as as just being in this weird other realm. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. I, I do see that as well. Um, so there's lots of different ways to look at it. For me, it was that phrasing that really did it for me of that. It is literally him saying that, um, like the, the same phrasing that Harry's heard in the past, but you're, you're right too, that it does have that, that aspect of that's just how much information Harry, the conscious hair or the, the, still alive Harry can hear before he chooses to go on. And, and that's also um, partly why so, I see it. Can I finish one thing? Sorry. Yeah. Um, that's also partly why I see it as Dumbledore having the information in this scene and not Harry. Like I, I think if Harry fully died, 
then he wouldn't have to have Dumbledore explain things to him. He would become a little bit more like omniscient or he would he would know more of the pieces of what had gone on himself. And and I see that you're saying that he already did know all this stuff, but and I get that too. But I'm I'm thinking that like Dumbledore had to, Dumbledore is in that role of he's dead and he has all the pieces of knowledge able to then impart them to Harry, even though, like you said, it is a lot of stuff that Harry already knew or could have pieced together himself. But Dumbledore is in the role of being like kind of the all-knowing person and Harry isn't fully dead yet. So he's not going to have all of that knowledge until he would get on that train. Yeah. Okay. That's true too. So I think people, I think what's, what's so beautiful about this chapter though, is that there are so many interpretations available and there's nothing that's a closed door of this is the way it has to be. And I'm glad that JK Rowling has never tried to rewrite history of what's happened here. Um, At least at this point in time, she's never tried to rewrite history of what's happening here. Let's just Um, put this out there. We don't want you you to tell us about it. No, we really don't. I know she's listening. So (laughs) yeah. Um, so then we do have one more little bit where Harry says, like, Voldemort has the Elder Wand, and I think this is him, the wheels turning in his head about, okay, Voldemort has the Elder Wand, but Dumbledore thinks I can still survive. So um, Dumbledore says, I, you have less to fear from returning here than he does. Um, and then he has the, the beautiful quote of, do not pity the dead, Harry, pity the living, and above all, those who live without love. I I like that quote too, um, but I've always been a little bit confused by pity the living. Is that just meaning like Harry should in this moment pity the living because he needs to return and help them? Um, Or I think I think he's saying that people who are alive have much more complicated choices to make than than the people who are dead obviously that's kind of it is kind of an odd phrasing and I think more times people focus on just the living without love part um but you're right that there is just the pity living clause before the, above all else those who live without love yeah I think and- that it is I think it is that once you're dead your story like you're you're done having to make hard decisions and the living people are the ones who have it more tough because they're the ones who have to have a complicated road ahead of them, I guess. Yeah, I, I kind of, I think that I, I, now I'm looking at this quote a little bit more. I agree with what you're saying, um, but I also think that maybe it's been taken out of context too much um, and that people are applying it to a general pity the living. But I think that it, I kind of think that actually it's maybe saying you need to have pity on those who are still alive right now and go help them. Yeah, it, I just think it'd be interesting. It's interesting that Dumbledore would choose the word pity for that because that would be more like empathy. But yeah, but, but I think, yeah, but I, I think, just think in like, context, it does have to do with. Yeah, I just think it gets taken out of context a lot and that it, it it's kind of been made to seem like it's this sweeping statement that could be applied to all of our lives all the time. Um, the, the part about those who live without love, I, I could see that, but the pity the living part is kind of a weird thing out of context. And I, I don't necessarily think it was meant to be out of context. Well, okay. I, I do think in context, it does have to do with the, the people that Harry's going back to save. But I, I, I do think he's also saying you don't need to feel bad for people who are dead, who are dead because they're already dead. Um, and you should feel bad for the people who are alive and have to have like hard choices in their life ahead of them. Okay. Yeah. That's a good way of saying it. 
So, yeah. And then, so Harry says, like, he's deciding he has to make his decision. And um, he finally, before he chooses, he asks whether it's real or it's been happening in his head. And we know how it ends. Yeah, we've only quoted it 50 other times in this chapter. <laughs> but I do love it. Right. I just love and I it. Just, it's a course series. <laughs> I just love how Harry says, like, he, it's just his last thing he wants to know. He just he wants to know whether it was real or not. And I, I love that Dumbledore answers it in a way that it sums it up. And it sums up the whole series. I mean, people have then taken this quote out of context a lot, too, and said, like, this isn't just applying to Harry in this weird afterlife dream. Um, this is applying to the whole series. This is applying to um, magic and, you know, imagination and fantasy and thinking about how it doesn't mean it's not real just because we've imagined it. So I think it is a very, very wonderful quote. And it's a great way to end this chapter because it does not answer the question. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, it's such such a beautiful quote. It is my favorite of the series. Um, it's what I wanted in my yearbook, even though somebody on my yearbook staff did something else by accident. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it symbolizes everything that we love about the series. It's everything that the, the series has meant to us. The story of Harry Potter, the characters, the um, imagination and world that's been created by um, this, these books. Um, and that's, I, I completely, like you said, just this quote means everything to me. And I think it's so underreported too, like the, the choice Harry makes here. Like we, we talk a lot about the choice he makes in the forest again, where he's going, he's going to sacrifice himself but here, this is almost, I mean, in some ways, this is even just as tough of a decision that he isn't going to die. He's going to come back and he's going to have to um, go through some really tough things. He's going hes going to be pitied because he's going to be alive again. Um, but he was already in the place where he was ready to die and he knew that it would be for the, the, the good of humankind. And now he knows that he's going to have to suffer if he goes back, but he's willing to do that too. So that's, I mean, underreported, like I said, I think equally as important of a decision that Harry makes here and equally as um, self-sacrificing. I completely agree. That's a really underreported story that Harry does make this choice. Um, and I mean, people might debate whether it really was a choice um, in some ways, like whether it was his destiny or whether it was like whether he actually had the option of dying here. But I do think even if even from my perspective of this being like a dream sequence, I do think he could have died um, if he had made the choice of of not uh, surviving. And obviously, we don't want to conflate like choosing death um, with the same kind of thing that we talked about with like Merope's death um that's not the same kind of uh, idea of choosing life or choosing death um but for for Harry here it is him deciding I'm going to go back even though I have been killed part of me has been killed um he could he can choose whether it's the whole part of him or just the horcrux and he can choose whether to go back or not yeah and this is where we're seeing like Harry is a real Gryffindor like he will always make the hard choices and he knows what's right and he knows what he has to do. And it's more than just about him. It's about saving everyone. And um, he knows he has that capability. He is a man in a million. 
He is the man in the million, exactly. Um, even though I do really wish that that said the person in the million, but I guess it's for the alliteration. So, um, all right. Well, that is the end of the chapter. Um, I've said many times it's like my favorite chapter of the series, but I'm a, I have a feeling that we're probably not going to rank it as number one of the of the book so far. So, wh- where do you think we should rank it? I don't know. I I'd, I'd be okay with ranking it number one. Actually, I mean it. It's so I love I love the unansweredness of it and I think you it's interesting because you don't feel it's as unanswered but you love it probably maybe more than I do Mm -hmm. um so it's interesting to see that we have different perspectives but what I love about it is how magical it is and that's not normally what I care about in Harry Potter but I I love that with I think it's very interesting when we bring in all of the elements of death and I think that thinking about what's after life um in the Harry Potter world is very interesting to me. So uh, that's what I love about this chapter. And I love seeing Dumbledore again. And I love um, getting to have that reconciliation and have Harry work through everything. So I, I personally, I could put it at number one. You're not just doing this for my sake. No, I wish the forest again was higher actually, but I am okay with having this as number one. I, yeah. Because people say, people say I boss you around on these chapter rankings. <laughs> well, you're only going to be able to boss me around for two, this one and, well, I guess two more after this. And I am the not, good, the, not going to be talked into putting the epilogue higher than like number 30. 37. 37, <laughs> honestly. Uh, well, the good news about putting this, this at number one is that it's moving deathly. Or we have the Battle of Hogwarts now is at number six. Um, so if we put the flaw in the plan anywhere in the top six, that'll mean that the Battle of Hogwarts will be at number seven and it'll be 731. Perfect. That's what we needed. <laughs> That's what we've been searching for. <laughs> um yeah, okay, well, um, I think we have an easy decision ahead of us for what the real weirdo this week is, even <laughs> though I don't think Dumbledore's actually there. I, yeah, well, then if, if Dumbledore's not actually there, the only character we could possibly give it to is Harry, so I guess that's who it is, right? Or the Embrimort. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever that yeah, thing is. I definitely think Dumbledore needs to get the real weirdo here. It's the only chance, really, in this yes. in this book. Definitely. Um, so congratulations to you, Dumbledore. Massive kudos. Kudos, kudos to Dumbledore. <laughs> so you can find those lists of our chapter rankings and real weirdos on our website, realweirdsisters.com. Um, we'd also love it if you'd go to facebook.com slash realweirdsisters and give us a like there, comment on the episodes as well there, and interact with some other real weirdos um, on the Facebook page. We are on Twitter at realweirdsister. I'm on Twitter at realweirdmartha, and Alice is on Twitter at realweirdalice. And, um, of course, the number one way that you can support the show is by going to patreon.com slash realweirdsisters and pledging at the $1, $5, $10, $20 level um, per month. That is how you can find out what we're doing with the show next if you'd like to find out early. Um, And the show is not ending. So just because we are here to um, or just because we are coming up at the end of the book club doesn't mean that it's a bad time to join the Patreon because we're going to keep going for the foreseeable future. Of course, the other way that you can support the show is by going to iTunes and giving us a five star review and rating there. Um, We have one this week to read from Kitty Cat Casey. And the title of the review is The Real Weird Sisters. Very simple. Um, So Kitty Cat Casey says, this podcast is amazing. Alice and Martha are so knowledgeable about all of the characters. The voice impressions are hilarious. It's a definite listen for 
every Harry Potter fan. I highly recommend it. Keep up the good work, ladies. So thank you, Casey. Um, I hope that that was a real cat writing that one. Me too. I think it was our first cat review that we've gotten um, from our, our first, first kitty cat. It's cute. <laughs> yes. So thank you, Casey. I really appreciate that review. Um, we will be back next week with our penultimate chapter, our final chapter of the series, unless you count the epilogue, which I guess we're going to have to. Um, we'll be back to talk about the flaw in the plan. Until next time, we're the Real Weird Sisters. We're the Weird Sisters, we're the Real Weird Sisters. All you other Weird Sisters are fine, but not the Vickers. Will the Real Weird Sisters please stand up? Please stand up? Please stand up? With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.